0: From PRX.
1: Today on Studio 360. These arguments about, um, you know, this is not what comedy is. If one person can kill comedy, comedy can't be that robust. Why, well, Hannah
0: Gatsby isn't losing any sleep over trolls claiming she's destroying comedy.
1: It's in an iron lung anyway. I just pulled the plug. Plus...
2: I'm a Korean-Canadian woman. I'm a French lit major. I'm from Vancouver. None of those things are essentially hip-hop.
0: Sophia Chang on her remarkable career in hip-hop.
2: So to be, not only to be welcomed, but to be embraced the way that I was, was so
0: incredible. I'm Hari Kundabolu, comedian and South Asian-American sex symbol. Guest hosting for Kurt Anderson. All that and more is ahead in Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of guard. This is writing.
1: Thomas Jefferson's vegetable
2: garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done.
1: Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson.
0: Hey, everybody. I'm Hari Kundabolu filling in this week for Kurt Anderson. So I'm a stand-up comedian, and my favourite special from last year was by far Hannah Gatsby's Nanette on
1: Netflix. The pride flag. Now, I love what it means. That is perfect. Pride. Wonderful. But the flag itself? A bit busy.
0: Nanette starts out like a very conventional stand-up special. There's just lots of great jokes.
1: It's just six very shouty, assertive colours stacked on top of each other. No rest for the eye. An afternoon of that waving in in my face, I need to express my identity through the metaphor of a nap.
0: (laughs) And then over the course of the hour it gets a lot more confrontational, it gets more serious, there's lots of twists and turns, it gets gut-wrenching. Because she's talking about serious stuff. She's talking about trauma, violence, homophobia, and the nature of comedy itself.
1: Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me.
0: I thought NET was incredibly funny and poignant and smart. It deconstructed the form It was able to challenge people's notion of what stand-up is supposed to be. Her new show, Douglas, is just as good. The big difference is that there are a ton more jokes. And it's also powerful because she's talking about her diagnosis with autism. Before last summer, very few people in the U.S. had ever heard of Hannah Gatsby, but she didn't come out of nowhere. Well, I mean, she kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, she's from Tasmania. But she was well-known in, like, comedy circles in the U.K. and Australia before she even wrote Nanette. She'd been performing... Hour long shows for over a decade in festivals in Melbourne and Edinburgh.
1: Well, every year I'd write a new show. So, my first show was my coming out story, which is Kiss Me Quick, I'm Full of Dubes, which is a uh, candy in Australia. And I was like, my hormones played a cruel joke on me. They said, let's make this one into the ultimate baby carrying vessel. And then give her absolutely no fucking desire to make one. I'm like a transformer that doesn't fancy driving. And then my next show was called The Cliff Young Shuffle, um, which was a, a long-form piece about walking... I walked across England while coming off antidepressants. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've never done normal shows, have I? I had to go and see a podiatrist. He openly laughed at my feet. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm glad you went into podiatry, not gynaecology. Yes. I could never have written Nanette without those ten years of... The, the, the shows beforehand you know, were the, were the sort of the building blocks that led to that.
0: What was your life like before Nanette? It's <laughs> so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> were you in Tasmania?
1: I, I live in Melbourne now, yeah. um, living in a little rental. Mm. Um, I didn't believe I'd ever be able to afford a home of my own. Mm. So I decided about a year before I wrote Nanette, I really want a garden. I'm just going to plant out this rental. And so before Nanette, really, it was dogs and gardening and tea and a lot of alone time. I spent a lot of time alone. I think I was exhausted. I'd been diagnosed with autism, so I was adjusting to that new sort of framework of understanding myself. Of course, diagnosis doesn't come with a change. (laughs) You just have it. That happened before Nanette was released. Oh, yeah. Oh, before it was written. I mean, Nanette was pretty much the show I could write once I understood what was setting me apart because I was always very confused. I was like, I just felt like there was something really deeply wrong with me. So I was always just scrambling to get to the starting line of normal. And then once I was diagnosed, I'm like, oh, I'm never going to get there. You know, there's a, there's a brain situation. Um, so I began to look at myself with a lot more empathy because all my work prior to that was going, I'm sorting out what's wrong with me, whereas then I'm like, Oh, I know what's wrong with me. I know my limits. But then I turn my critical eye onto the world. And I'm gone. I can also see your limits. Mm. <laughs> there is too much hysteria around gender from you gender normals. You're the weirdos. You're, the, you're a bit f***ing hysterical. You're a bit weird. You're a bit up top. You need to get a grip. You know, you gender normals. <laughs> Seriously, calm down, gender normals. Get a grip. No, I'm in a dress, that's weird. No, it's not. Do you know what's weird? Pink headbands on bald babies. <laughs> but then it's also interesting to me that just the weird breadth of demographic that really loved Nanette. Yeah. And that's, I think, really kind of great to know that, like, when you think of all the things that I tick off as an individual as being in the margins... You know, apart from being white, which then I'm in the center of privilege right there. Right, right, Which is, I think, what let me get away with it. Like, if I was an autistic, queer, not traditionally good-looking, overweight, indigenous woman, right? <laughs> Nanette wouldn't have happened.
0: Man, Nanette really touched people. I don't think I realized the extent of it at first. I mean... All my friends were talking about Nanad. It was popping up on Facebook constantly. But it was only when I saw you on stage presenting at the Emmys when I realized how huge you'd become.
1: Nobody knows what jokes are, especially not men. Um, <laughs> am I right, fellas? That's why I'm presenting alone. Uh, and this is the point where I can't, because I, I literally have gone, come from nowhere in this circle, like, it's, you know, the Hollywood situation. But all of a sudden, I'm an alien in that world, but people know who I am, and it's weird. Like, people I have seen on TV and only associate as, like, I went to this party for Netflix and there were people there. So you're moving around just going, gosh, there's Jodie Foster. get <laughs> Oh, John Stamos. a And then they're coming up to me. So I'm <laughs> forgetting and they've seen Nanette and they want to talk to me. And that is a really trippy experience. Like John Stamos. Yeah. I mean, anyway. Uncle Jesse. Yeah. Fan of Nanette. You would not. Uh, that's what I mean. John like,
0: Stamos is a fan of Nanette.
1: Seen it twice. That's what he told me. Oh. Um, but, you know, people lie. <laughs> but I, I want to believe Uncle Jesse. But, you know, after recent events, can we trust Fuller House? <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, so that's sort of this weird moment because I'm used to being in a crowd. I can be invisible and I just watch the world go by and I'm very happy with that. Yeah. But then these people are coming up to me and I'm like, oh, they're t- oh, g'day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is also good because they get to lead the conversation and then – I'm like, and then I just say, I am also a fan of your work. Right. Um, like a robot. And then, so i mean that, so that's already quite a lot to take in. And then I, this woman taps me on the shoulder and says, Jennifer Aniston would like to meet you. And I'm like, oh, and I look around for her. She's not there because I'm being summoned. <laughs> 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 and uh, so I'm like, well, okay, let's, let's, uh, sure. And then all the way through this party, like I'm following this woman weaving through the crowd, and I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> and I, It was also weird because it was outdoors and it had white carpet on the outdoors of the land. I'm like, hmm. huh. decisions. That's bold decisions <laughs> and also why decisions. But anyway, um, should we get there and um <laughs> I'm introduced, and she's delighted to see me, and I'm delighted to see that her hair is as good as everyone says. <laughs> it's not all Photoshop. Um, and so she's like, she goes in for a hug. I, who am I to refuse? Um, and then she said, oh, "I'm so excited to meet you. I just have to tell you, I have not seen Nanette." <laughs> <laughs> It was based on hype alone. Hype alone. Jennifer Aniston wanted to meet me because other people had told her, (sighs) and then I just. But I've just sort of, very bluntly replied, "Why did you tell me that? You said that? Yeah, I have autism. Oh, okay. Yeah, Um, (laughs) and uh, she for a moment she seemed slightly thrown by that." Because she's like, I'm Jennifer Aniston. That's why I tell you that. And yeah. then she, re- I think she heard herself and then laughed. Like it was, it was a lovely, genuine moment. Which yeah. Is like I just wanted, you know, to connect to you in to some way. To connect to you. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I've heard such great things. I haven't been able to watch it because I've been filming. And yeah, yeah. I I think ultimately, as weird and funny as that interaction is, it's also kind of a, you know, she lives a weird life. Yeah. And she's she's probably going, I don't know what goes through other people's head. I have autism, but it was a strange little. A little, little situation, wasn't it? I liked it. Ultimately, I think that was a good interaction. Oh, that's a great interaction. Part of me goes, good on you. Don't know what motivates you, <laughs> But cool. And by the time I identified as being gay, it was too late. I was already homophobic. And you do not get to just flick a switch on that. No, what you do is you internalise that homophobia and you learn to hate yourself hate yourself to the core.
0: I mean, you got so much love for Nanette, but there was a really loud backlash from mostly dudes complaining that it doesn't count as comedy. Uh, there aren't enough jokes. Comedy isn't supposed to be this serious. It's it's supposed to make you laugh.
1: Like how do you respond to that? I think if the only reason you speak is to make people laugh. Yeah. What are you saying? Right,
0: right. And and we hear it from our peers too. Look, I want to be able to destroy in
1: every room. I want to make people laugh in every room. But if you want to then build an hour long show that that you want, you know, over an hour that you want people to sit down and watch, it's very arrogant to think that, you know, just destroying every room you walk in is going to be enough for people who are not in a room with you. It's a different form because people get bored laughing, believe it or not. Mm. You can be wall-to-wall funny for 70 minutes and they they either get bored or mindless mm, they and don't remember a thing that was and said, that's also yeah. fine but these arguments about um, you know this is not what comedy is What comedy was invented so recently it's a literal joke you know like you mean the
0: form of stand-up <laughs> that
1: way yeah, <laughs> like yeah, they, yeah. It's, it hasn't been around long enough to yeah. be getting this high and mighty about yeah, yeah. something you've just made up yeah yeah like it's a made-up but like, like all art, eventually, you know, if you dig deep enough, it is made up. Shaped wolf.
0: by where it was performed, the context it was performed in. Well, I
1: mean, if you look way back, way back before even the written word, you have oral storytelling. That is how culture was passed through. And that was something that women participated in. Uh, and then historically, women have been squeezed out the, the sharing of stories and the right. writing of stories, you know, through um, not being able to access education – um, public spaces, et cetera, et cetera. So really you stand-up comedy is the logical conclusion of centuries of, you know, men writing their own rules for themselves, which is fine. Good on you, fellas. <laughs> but um, you made a mistake by letting women be educated, and now we are. So back off.
0: Right. <laughs> right. I mean, because the <laughs> accusation's already been made, like, oh, you killed comedy. You're killing <laughs> comedy.
1: But if one person can kill comedy, comedy can't be that robust. It's in an iron lung anyway. Right. I just pulled the plug.
0: And comedy, first of all, th- there must be some evolutionary benefit because why else are we still laughing? Like, there, clearly there is something. You cannot, you cannot kill uh, yep. that art form.
1: Well, you can because people are okay at making themselves laugh. They don't actually need to outsource Particularly mm. now, like friends and family make you laugh more than any comedian ever will. That's right. Absolutely, unless you're lonely, which <laughs> a lot of comics are, speaking from experience. But it's also <laughs> like people are able to make themselves laugh in their own circles quite easily. And particularly now with the internet, you can have access to laughs anytime you want. Mm-hmm. So you can go, I need a laugh. You look on YouTube, whatever, whatever floats your boat, you can find that laughter there. So you, I think the, the live art form has to evolve because the, the world has what it needs at its fingertips. If, if you want to take comedy seriously, then you have to, you know, it has to move into a more mature form. Otherwise, just do fart jokes against a brick wall.
0: <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that if Absolutely that's what you not. do. No. In Annette, you talk about leaving comedy altogether.
1: I, I do think I have to quit comedy, though. And seriously, um, and it's probably not the forum to make such an announcement, is it? <laughs> um, in the middle of a comedy show. But I have been questioning, you know, this whole comedy thing. I don't, I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. Um, you know, for the past year I've been questioning it and reassessing it. And I think it's healthy for an adult human to take stock, pause and reassess. Uh, and when I first started doing the comedy over a decade ago... My favourite comedian was Bill Cosby. There you go. It's very healthy to reassess, isn't it?
0: If Nanette had not hit the way it hit and became this global sensation, would you have quit comedy
1: altogether? I would have quit the cycle that I was on, which is writing a new show every year. Once I was diagnosed with autism, I understood the lifestyle I was leading was incredibly distressing. Mm. Um, So I'd spend three or four months really in a catatonic state, which is after the Edinburgh Festival generally. And so and then I'd have to write a new show. Um, and I, th- I believe that was shortening my life. But also I'm approaching it, you know, my what I do next in the same way that I approached Nanette, which is like I need to not care if this fails. I need to know that I'm happy. And I am. I know that I'm happy. Like if this all goes away tomorrow, I just go back and live with my dogs and... <laughs> nurture a garden and probably get a few shifts at my brother's fruit and vegetable shop. And you know what? Like, I am that simple in my needs. I would be fine.
0: When you got diagnosed with autism, is there was that part of you that, you know, there's that performer part, every experience, every piece of pain, you recycle it and you try to turn it into something funny or... You know, th- was there a part of you that had the instinct, this happened, what do I do with it?
1: I, I had a fairly good instinct to keep it to myself because I had put most things out into the world quite like, well, that's, that's something I can wrangle into a show. But this cut right very much to the center of my identity. This is my brain. This is the way that I think. I know, like, just, you just know the way people view autism is not great. It's not an empowered platform. Um, so I knew to keep it to myself. And then, but what I did with Nanette was a show about autism. Ultimately, it's like, look how my brain thinks. Mm. It's constructive. I see things that people don't. I don't see a lot of things that most people do.
0: In your new show, Douglas, you talk about your diagnosis really like directly and powerfully. For people who know you from Nanette, when they see Douglas, what are they getting?
1: They're getting, well, first of all, they're getting a performer who's not you know, frightened, (laughs) you know, every time I stood on stage to perform, then I was, you know, I knew what was coming. So there's a, you know, I was carrying a lot and it was never easy to perform with Douglas. It's a, it's a fun show. Like it is a playful, silly, it's it's showing another facet of, of who I am.
0: There are so many jokes. It's a really joke heavy show. I mean that does respond to like oh she doesn't have jokes. I'm like, "Oh, no. Now <laughs> what do you think they're going to criticize you about now since you've proven you're funny and you have even more jokes in this hour?"
1: Oh, that's why I'm doing it. I'm fascinated. They will have something to say and I need yeah. to know what it is.
0: <laughs> so you're 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 trolling them. Hate baiting. Yes.
1: I I call it what it is in the show. I'm deliberately hate baiting. Wow. Yeah, sort of like I take a poignant moment and then I sort of destroy it. That's the most talented trolling I could have possibly imagined. I mean, if you've got a platform, yes. what are you going to do? You guys are going to do good, or you're going to troll trolls? Right. I've already done good. Yes. So why not troll trolls?
0: <laughs> Can you tell me about <laughs> your dad's scrapbook?
1: Oh, dad has been <laughs> dad has been collecting, you know, reviews and articles since I first started doing comedies. And he's less nostalgic than more of an archivist. So he's like, here's the thing, that Google alert said that you've been mentioned. <laughs> and so it's the good, bad, and ugly. Before I wrote Nanette, there was two spiral bound. He went to Staples, it's office works in Australia, but I'm trying, uh, Staples, <laughs> um, and got them bound, spiral bound. Yeah. You know, So he'd been printing them off, and so he's got oh. these two spiral bound things. And at Christmas before Nanette, he said, It's starting to get a bit same-same, so I'm going to stop. She said, there's your your two scrapbooks there. And it had, like, on the front, my comedy career with, like, Microsoft Word graphics and, (laughs) like, 3D (laughs) off. Like, it's so cute. And then, of course, I wrote Nanette, and then halfway through the years, like, well, I've had to start a new spiral (laughs) bound. And he was really ill. He was melanoma, being treated for melanoma through all this. So it was kind of, like, a really great way for me to be in his life you know, because there's not much you can do while someone's in treatment, you know, like for me to go, I'm going to cancel my New York season and go home and be with my dad. It's just like, that's a lot. So that was a really wonderful way, you know, for me to still be like actively connected to my dad during that whole thing, because he's like, you know, Google alert on me. And of course there was so much press, right? so much press. So he said to me, he said, you know, when you're in Edinburgh, I could just take the ads out and you could. You could print it out on an A4 piece of paper, fine, but this this New York Times review went for pages. I'm not made of toner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The New York Times should know that. Yep. They should restrict how much they write.
1: Watch your word count. My dad's not made of toner. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Hannah, thank you for doing this.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Hannah Gatsby's
0: new show is called Douglas. She's currently in the middle of a world tour. By the way, a few days after we talked, Hannah won an Emmy for her writing on the net. Coming up... So? Tell me what he's like. He's an orphan. The movie that was my 14-year-old self's secret obsession.
1: He thinks he's got thinks he's got a bad woman's
0: heart. That's next in Studio 360.
1: Studio 360.
0: Hi, I'm Hari Kundabolu, and I'm filling in for Kurt Anderson, who is currently on assignment in Hawaii doing research on Mai Tais. But it's not actually the first time I've been here. Two years ago, I came on the show to talk about a secret obsession of mine— A work of art that began the process of brainwashing me into thinking that relationships were just about love. A movie that taught me that as long as you have love, there are no other complications. The 1993 romantic film Untamed Heart. Magic records
2: and a baboon heart. You almost got me
0: believing in it. Untamed Heart is a romance film that stars uh, Christian Slater. I was wondering you think about me half as much as I think about you. And Marissa Tomei.
2: I don't want you to die. I love you.
0: With wonderful support work by Rosie Perez. You mother-effing, lousy, filthy pig. Your mother's a slut, and your father's a hoe. The first time I ever saw Untamed Heart, it was probably the end of junior high school or early high school. I think that was around the time I was like, oh, discovering girls. And it's like, Marissa Tomei, wow. And we used to get HBO for free for a week, you know, because they used to have those previews. And uh, so I remember seeing it midway through and being amazed, like, I've never had these feelings before. And I feel sad. And at the same time, I want to feel that kind of feeling that they're having. I believe it's called love. At some point, I remember going to a store and actually buying a VHS tape of Untamed Heart, which I think must have been strange to see like a teenage South Asian boy with a copy of Untamed Heart. Like it's I don't think people would have expected that, but maybe that Reddit form hasn't been created yet the opening scene of the film was a Marissa Tomei runs into her home and she's about to go on a date so she's changing out of her waitress clothes and Suzanne Vega's song Tom's Diner the remix version was playing while she was changing very 90s And Tammy runs down and goes into the car and it's clear that the guy isn't as into her as she is into him.
2: You don't want to see me anymore?
0: No, I didn't say that. It's just maybe we should just start seeing other people. And it's kind of this constant that you see of things just not working out in her life. She works at a diner. Then one night, uh, Caroline's walking home and two guys who had been bothering her at the diner had followed her and attempted to rape her, uh, at which point Christian Slater's character, who's the busboy named Adam, takes a two-by-four or four-by-four. Four. I really don't know uh, the dimensions of the piece of wood, but then knocked them both unconscious. And uh, takes her home. So then they start falling in love with each other. I'm going to fall in love with you. You don't have to love me back. I'm going to give you my heart. 14-year-old me is like, oh my God! You can say that and you can feel that? Like, this this is new it was very confusing because uh, usually when you like think of puberty, you don't think of complex emotions, you know, you think of like that girl's hot! And it wasn't that, it was like, this is really beautiful So
2: Tell me what he's like He's an orphan Really? He's
1: a lot smarter than people think He thinks he's got thinks he's got a bad woman's heart
0: Christian Slater claims that he has uh, a baboon's heart. It's just a story one of those nuns at that orphanage told a scared little boy who didn't know why he was so scared. He's got some kind of heart problem. And so he believed till adulthood that it was a baboon's heart. This becomes a bigger factor when the two guys that Adam beat up earlier to save Caroline come back and stab him, which sends him to the hospital, and because of the enlarged heart, he almost dies, and he refuses to get a heart transplant because he's worried that if he gets a new heart, he can't love Caroline the same.
2: Adam, the heart you have is diseased.
0: No one is taking away my heart.
1: You were just a kid, it was just a story. You're gonna die someday if you don't do something about it.
0: This, this is my heart adorable so anyways he doesn't get the uh, the transplant and you see like a montage of about a year of their life and how deeply they fall in love with each other and then uh, adam dies uh which I-, I suppose in some ways is a spoiler but you know what's gonna happen i never knew life could be like that it was the one thing i
2: followed through with in my life the one thing i didn't give up on
0: The film doesn't have a happy ending, but in some ways that's the important part. It's the fact that she loves him so much and that her crying at the end and her mourning shows how much she loved him. You get that sense, especially when she's by herself in his apartment holding his vinyl records, listening to the same Nat King Cole song that they play earlier, which is Nature Boy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And
0: the thing is, if he hadn't died at the end, they might have still broken up. You know, you don't actually know that. Maybe, you know, he was bad with money. Maybe he doesn't want to have kids and she does or vice versa. Maybe he's so awkward her family can't handle it anymore. And she's like, all right. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen. Life is complicated. But it totally began the process of brainwashing me into thinking this is how love worked. I mean, people ask you what your favorite film is. And it depended on if I wanted to be honest or not. And if I wanted to be honest, I would tell them Untamed Heart. If not, I think I probably said Newsies. And then I realized that wasn't a thing you could say either. It was hard to tell that to to other guys. Like, yeah, my favorite movie is Untamed Heart. It's like, really? It's not Cliffhanger or Rocky or Jurassic Park As a teenage boy, you're not supposed to have feelings like this. You're not supposed to want to fall in love, I think. And you're not supposed to appreciate two characters who are in love. Like, it's not really taught that.
1: I've fallen. Did you hurt yourself? I wasn't finished. I have fallen so in
0: love with you. There's incredible chemistry between Marissa Tomei and christian slater and i think marissa tomei really makes this film and i'm not just saying this as the like 14 year old boy that was in love with marissa tomei or the 34 year old man who was still in love with marissa tomei but i mean this opened a door for me like after this i saw love story 1970 with ali mcgraw ryan o'neill
1: love means never having to say you're sorry
0: bed of roses
1: why are you so afraid to be
2: happy don't you think that he's worth the risk?
0: Far and away, not a good movie. I pretend I love
2: you. I pretend I love you too.
0: Untamed Heart. This started the whole thing. There was a boy. A very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far, over land and sea. So that's my guilty pleasure when I was a strange, enchanted boy. And now I am a cynical man. What's something that you like that is unpopular or unfashionable? Or is just really surprising that someone like you likes something like that? Let us know in an email or voice memo and send it to incoming at studio360.org. Skylar Swenson produced that story. And
1: then one day... Coming up... Tiger style. (laughs) Tiger Tiger style. style. Yeah.
0: I wasn't
2: interested in kung fu movies because of my cultural denial, right? I wasn't interested in kung fu movies until I met
0: Wu-Tang. How Sophia Chang's three decade long friendship with the Wu Tang clan brought her closer to her own culture.
2: Being able to broach the topic of my cultural pride through this circuitous route of hip hop and Wu Tang,
0: that's a gift. That's next in Studio 360. Studio
2: 360.
0: I'm Hari Kondabolu, guest hosting for Kurt Anderson. I grew up in New York City, and when I wasn't watching garbage romance films, I was listening to a lot of music, and of course, hip hop in New York in the '90s was pretty unavoidable. I mean, I remember me and my friends blasting Craig Mack's "Flavor in Your Ear" remix in the summer of '95. We're talking Busta Rhymes, Biggie, El Cool J was on that. I mean, it was packed. and that's a key part of my childhood. It's unavoidable. But hip-hop would have been easy to miss for Korean-Canadian Sophia Chang. She grew up in the 70s and early 80s before hip-hop had really exploded, and she was far from the rap epicenter. I mean, she was kind of far from everything. She was in Vancouver, British Columbia.
2: Never mind not hearing hip-hop, I didn't grow up with R&B. It was really like rock and roll, and the closest that I got to hip-hop was punk. That kind of sense of urgency, but not with the beat. (laughs) But what really changed my life, the song that changed my life was The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I heard it in my senior year of high school. Hearing that song and hearing those opening synth notes. And the beat and the bottom, that's visceral. And then to hear the lyrics broken glass Everywhere? That's wow.
0: Broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage. You know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise, got no money to move out. I guess I got no choice.
2: I mean just this world that was painted that was so diametrically opposed to what I had grown up in. It was cinematic. Don't
0: push me, cause I'm close to the edge not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under.
2: There was a sense of anger and urgency that said, this is our world. This is our reality. This is who we are, and this is what we're dealing with.
0: Sophia Chang wanted to be closer to where the music was coming from. So right after she graduated with her degree in French literature, she moved to New York.
2: At that time, the scene was tiny. You know, it was 1987, and this is right kind of what we all generally call the golden era of hip-hop. Right, But it was still very New York-centric. It was birthed here, obviously. So going to the clubs, what was extraordinary about that time was the sense that the whole community was there. Mm. So you had the MCs, the DJs, the B-boys, you know, the graffiti artists. But you also had the managers, the A&R people, the promo people, the agents, the lawyers. And hip-hop was the galvanizing force.
0: Soon after she got to New York, she landed a job with a record label. And she rose quickly to work in A&R and marketing and management for some seminal hip-hop and R&B artists. A Tribe Called Quest, Hieroglyphics, Fushnikins, Raphael Sadiq, D'Angelo, and most importantly on side the new york alive was no job so then we moved she entered the inner chamber of the wu tang clan led by the brilliant producer RZA the legendary nine member group out of staten island changed hip hop forever starting with their 1993 debut album enter the wu tang
1: Mm -hmm. And Sophia Chang
0: was right there with him. She's managed RZA as well as other Wu-Tang members like Old Dirty Bastard and Jizza, And she talks about that lifelong friendship with the Wu-Tang Clan in her new memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. It's an audio memoir released by Audible, so there's no physical book. It traces her incredible career to when she started working in the music industry. I find it fast because you were you were doing A and R. Was it with Jive? Yes. And you worked with a uh, tribe called Quest. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting because you're talking about this time where you have all these music executives, and it's like the art and the commerce were together. Yeah, that's a good point. But at the same time, I was thinking about that tribe lyric. Um uh, Industry rule industry number
2: 4080, record company people are shady. Industry rule number 4080, record company people are shady. So, kids, watch your back because I think they smoke
1: crack. I don't doubt it. Look at how they act.
0: You know, how are you able to not be one of the shady record executive people that Q Tip talks about?
1: I hope
2: he wasn't talking about me. I think that what was always at the core of my MO was I always wanted what was in the best interest of the artists. And I think that I've learned that they don't necessarily get that a lot.
0: Yeah. Sadly. What what does, and this is a very basic question, but what exactly does an A&R rep do?
2: So A&R stands for Artist and Repertoire but essentially the simplest way to describe it is that the A&R person is the talent scout so they are the person that goes out and they find the talent but once you find the talent and you convince your label to allow you to sign them then you shepherd them through the system of the label and the process of making an album and you facilitate that
0: early 90s you know you're obviously one of a few Asians in Record industry, and particularly in hip hop.
2: Well, I wasn't only an Asian; I was an Asian woman, right? So I was a mm. minority within a minority within a minority. I'm a Korean Canadian woman. I'm a French lit major. I'm from Vancouver. I mean, my phenotype, my background, my culture, my language—none of those things are essentially hip hop. So to be, not only to be welcomed, but to be embraced wow. the way that I was, was so incredible. It was such a privilege to be there, and all of that went to a whole other level with the Klan.
0: When did you first hear the Wu Tang Clan?
2: I first heard the Wu Tang Clan uh, probably in the spring of 1993 when I got the demo and it was on a Maxell tape and I just remember it was like scrawled and kind of crappy handwriting. And at the bottom of it, the name was Prince Rakim, and it had his phone number, which I remember to this day.
0: That's right. I, RZA's original uh, rap name is Prince Rakim. was Prince Rakeem.
2: I call him Rakim to this day. Really? I do.
0: Yo, chill with the feedback block. We don't need that. It's 10 o'clock. Oh, where the just f- see that? Feeling mad hostile. Ran out No one like Christ when I speak to st-
2: and so I heard the demo, and I was playing it for anybody that would listen. Yeah. Slap it in my little yellow Walkman. Listen to this, listen to this. Yeah. Put on those little shitty... <laughs> right, 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 right. Listen, listen. So I knew that I wanted to get to know the guys and also the mind behind the music. Right. And luckily, the guys were doing some of the recording at Battery Studios, which was in the same building as Jive, and that's when I met all of them.
0: And then how did you build a relationship? When you weren't, like... They weren't on Jive. You weren't representing them at the time, right? Right. You ended up later managing RZA, Mm -hmm. is and ODB. Mm -hmm. But at the time, that was not your relationship. So how did you become friends? How did you find a way in? Exactly what you're saying. Right.
2: I don't work for you. You don't work for me. You're not signed to my label. You're not signed to my publishing company. I don't manage you. There's no transaction, right? I'm not sleeping with any of you. There's no money. There's no power. There's no access. There's none of that. I am I am this woman that is a huge fan who just shows up at your door and I'm this kind of anomaly, like this little Asian woman and she's just brimming with excitement and she's like a Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> and And we kind of can't get rid of her, but we kind of don't want to.
0: I want to play a clip from near the beginning of your audio memoir that's on Audible.
2: What I love about hip-hop and Wu-Tang in particular – was that they made it acceptable not only to be angry, but also to express that rage through art. As a petite Asian woman, I never had the luxury to simply lean in. I had to kick down the motherfucking door. I had to learn to be big and strong in other ways. As the Rizza would say, my tongue is my sword, and I assure you, I have eviscerated many in my day.
0: You talk about how... You appreciated the anger and the rage Mm -hmm. that Wu-Tang showed in their music and how rare that was. Mm -hmm. Why did that attract you to their music? Why is rage and anger in music and in art specifically important to you?
2: When I was young, I mean, I got called chink, jap, gook all the time. Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these. And that Fucking piss me off. Yeah, Watching my parents, and I'm sure you went through this experience, watching my parents who spoke English and still do with an accent and have a clearly different phenotype, right? Who are clearly other. Watching them be made to feel other in the most crass and vulgar way was enraging to me. So to hear music by these black men who also had a sense of rage, who also lived on the margins, who were also held down, and black women, of course, and who were also held down by white supremacy and white patriarchy. I mean, obviously, I didn't have this language when I was a kid, but I knew that I was mad, all right? I just knew that I was mad at being called a chink. And so when I heard this music and feeling this sense of urgency, but also a sense of pride, and one of the things that I find so remarkable about Wu-Tang, yes, we can talk about their rhymes. Yes, we can talk about Riz's beats. But what resonated with me as a petite Korean-Canadian woman was also a fearlessness, mm. right? They walked with so much confidence. They would walk through the clubs, a hand on each other's shoulders, so they would form a chain. It was almost the idea of a Spartan phalanx. Right. Meaning, wu Chan Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. Right. And that kind of claiming of their space was incredibly powerful.
0: I was going to say Congolent, but you're right. I think the chain <laughs> is probably a better... I remember when they came out, you could tell there was a degree of fear from part of the mainstream. Because... They were willing to be angry, and they were willing to be honest. Right. And I think that honesty and that anger and that straightforwardness, and there was nine of them, there was nine black men sharing their truth aggressively. Yes. That scared a lot of people. And I look at them now, and it's kind of amazing because they love kung fu movies. In a weird way, the Wu-Tang Clan, they kind of made their own kung fu fan fiction. It's the most <laughs> b- bizarre thing. Like they refer to Staten Island as Shaolin.
1: From the slums of Shaolin.
0: I mean, like they would almost be seen as nerdy in some ways by right, today's no Stan. question, no question. So many of us who don't fit into that white black binary end up having to navigate that space and be either closer to whiteness or closer to blackness or, or shift depending on this, you know, code switch depending on the situation. Sure. A lot of us have drawn strength from black art and culture. Yes. The idea of like speaking truth and yes. challenging yes. authority. And it's interesting because the Wu-Tang, they actually drew strength from an element of Asian culture.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I think that RZA is I believe that he's the Bruce Lee of hip-hop. RZA is a philosopher at heart. And think about what Bruce Lee did, right? So he took from all of these traditions... And then he put it together and he made his own style called Jeet Kundo. And I think that RZA did the same thing with music. He took all of these styles yeah. and then he created this music. None of us had ever heard anything like it. Yeah. Wait a second. It's, it's, it's messy and it's dirty and it's grimy and it's incredible. And it is so vibrant. And I think that he would attribute that to a lot of what he gleaned from watching those martial arts movies.
1: Shaolin shadow boxing. And a Wu Tang sword style. If what you say is true, the Shaolin and the Wu Tang could be dangerous. Do you think your Wu Tang sword can defeat me? On guard. I'll let you try my Wu Tang style.
0: Is there an argument to be made that it's cultural appropriation?
2: Cultural appropriation, when it's by people of color, does not feel the same to me. Hmm. I have a very smart friend named Kevin Brinell. He teaches race at Babson College. He says, you know, there are three kind of markers for cultural appropriation. Denigration, exploitation, and erasure. I don't think you could say that Wu-Tang is even remotely guilty of any of those things. It's like you said, they're called Wu-Tang Clan for Christ's sake. Right, right, right. Right? Shaolin, you know, my ex is a Shaolin monk to this day is one of the Rizas' closest friends. Riza trained in Kung Fu, right? So rather than erasing Chinese culture, Asian culture, martial arts culture, I think they did the exact opposite. I don't think we would have had Crouching Tiger without the Riza, and I mean that seriously. Hmm. I don't think we would have had Rush Hour without the Riza. I'm not saying that Ang Lee and that Chaya, Ye- sure. of course they all exist, and they were big stars.
0: But the films that they were in love with, they were from another era. hmm What you're saying is that they kind of brought them back into mainstream relevance. I think
2: that's right. I think that what happened, Harry, was when people listened me, for instance. I wasn't interested in kung fu movies because of my cultural denial. Right? I wasn't interested in kung fu movies until I met Wu-Tang. Experiencing their love of and respect for Asian culture up close that I had never had myself and frankly had never seen in anybody else, including my people was phenomenally empowering. Being able to broach the topic of my cultural pride through this circuitous route of hip-hop and Wu-Tang, that's
0: a gift. Yeah. I started doing stand-up comedy after I saw Margaret Cho Ah. (laughs) do stand-up comedy.
2: I have a Korean name. My Korean name is Moran, which is a pretty name, but you have to understand, I've heard my mother scream it from across the hills. (laughs) Moran!
0: I'd never seen a voice that wasn't black, white, or Latino doing stand-up. And even though she was a Korean-American woman from San Francisco, the ability for her to speak about her parents and her life and for her stories to be valid and for her to make people laugh with who she was. Mm -hmm. And they weren't laughing at her. They were Mm -hmm. laughing with her. That, That changed my life. And... My only wish was that I knew you existed when I was 14. It would have been wonderful to know that this music that me and my friends listened to, that was our soundtrack in New York City, that there was an Asian person that was contributing to the movement, and we had a place. So I thank you so much.
2: I am so honored to be here. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Sophia Chang's Audible Original Memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, is available September 26th. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. The production team is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra
2: Lopez-Monsalve.
0: Evan Chung.
2: Lauren Hanson.
0: Sam Kim.
2: Zoe Saunders.
0: Tommy Bizarriot. Morgan Flannery. Kurt Anderson. And I'm Hari Kundabolu. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Hari Kondabolu. Also, I'm on tour all over the country, including Charlotte, Northampton, Providence. Just go to HariKundabolu.com for show dates. That's H-A-R-I-K-O-N-D-A-B-O-L-U.com. Or just go to Google. You'll figure it out. Kurt Anderson's back next week. Thanks for listening. P R I. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. She changed the style of theater. David Hyde Pierce, one of the many students of Uta Hagen, who turned from a great actress into a great acting teacher.
2: She had to come up with all this grounding reality because otherwise she would just fly off into the wings because she was so innately theatrical.
0: Celebrating the birth centennial of Uta Hagen next time on Studio 360.